oh my god, every time this guy opens his mouth, it's like somebody ran up, snuck behind me, and just perched their dick on my shoulder like a parrot. <laughs> I just kept on cringing like, ugh, what the fuck? Well, you see, no, the frogs didn't actually happen. It was just a mass illusion brought on by MK Ultra. <laughs> fuck yeah. that guy. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to read a line to you from an opera. I want you to give me that line back in the language in which the opera was originally written. And for a bonus 250, uh, you can sing it. I'm Stanley Spector. There is the story of a boy genius. Willa Catherine, Thomas Kidd, Jean-Baptiste Paul And the game show host. I'm Jimmy Gator. Live from Burbank, California. First question for 25. This French playwright and actor joined the Béjar troupe of actors. And the ex-boy genius. I'm Chris Kidd, Donnie Smith. I used to be smart, now I'm just stupid. There is the story of the dying man. I'm Earl Partridge. I have a son, you know. You do? Uh, find him. I'm Frank T.J. Mackey. His lost son. What did he say? Because I am not going to take care of him. What does he want? And the dying man's wife. I'm Linda Partridge. I took care of him through this, Alan. What now, then? Me and him, did you understand? There's no one else. No one else! The caretaker. Hello! I'm Phil Parma. See, this is uh, the scene of the movie where you help me out. And there's the story of a mother. I'm Rose Gator. You come home soon after the show. I love you. Love you too. And the daughter. I'm Claudia Wilson Gator. Now that I've met you, would you object to never seeing me again? And the police officer in love. I'm Officer Jim Curring. My life is very stressful, and I'd hope to have a relationship that is very calm and undemanding and loving. So if you are this person, please leave me a message at box number 82. And this will all make sense in the end. Welcome into Film Tank, the weekly podcast that covers both new and classic cinema. To start off our February favorites, we've decided to go with Nick's favorite film, which is 1999's Magnolia. You complete me. You had me at hello. If you would like to get in touch with Film Tank, you can always email us at filmtankshow at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Film Tank Show. And you can listen to all of our episodes on our website, filmtankshow.com, or on iTunes. And now, here are your hosts, Nick Cheney, Toussaint Egan, and myself, Alex Diekman. Hey there again, everybody, and welcome into episode 49 of Film Tank. I am Alex Diekman, and on this episode, we have the usual guys here, Toussaint Egan and Nick Cheney. Alex, I just wanted to say I'm so excited to be able to talk about this film today, but I just wanted to give you fair warning... Uh, I will drop kick those fucking dogs if they come near me. I'm just giving. I'm just gonna let it lay it out there. <laughs> hey, you know what? It, it, yeah. Anything is really fair game as long as you say it before you do it. I guess <laughs> that's true. Those dogs better and stay the fuck away from me. me. <laughs> All right. So, um, since this is February favorites, and it is our three favorite films, the first one we're doing is Nick's favorite, Magnolia. And um, you know what? Since this is his film, I think he should tell you all about it and why he uh, why he likes it so much. So, Nick, you have the floor. Ooh, 
These are uh, some big shoes I have to uh, walk in now. Physically, they are they are large <laughs> they shoes. Are. Yeah, should have ordered smaller ones. So this is my favorite movie. Uh, as we've already discussed, it is Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia from 1999. Um, just brief, quick credits. It was both written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson, so this is a very personal project. Not that he hasn't written any of his other films, but because of how close, close to home this hit him even then, this was essentially was a reaction to him losing a parent, as far as I believe. Uh, and I think that's pretty evident when you watch the movie. Uh, there's a lot of uh, father figures and dying and grief and a lot of other things. <laughs> um, so I guess... I'm not going to give like a plot summary or anything like that because you've either seen it or you haven't, but it's a very, I would say, typical structure of as far as like uh, a mosaic kind of portrait of like a bunch of different characters, upwards of eight or ten, uh, and how they kind of link to each other, but in a non-Hollywood-esque way, I would say. Uh, yeah, I, I was, if I can interject really yeah, quickly, it's, 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 this has a very weird feel to it because... This feels like a bunch of separate different stories that are connected. This never feels like an ensemble film or anything like that. No, no. And there's a center focal point because they are all somehow uh, related, not familially, but uh, related at least uh, tangentially uh, to Earl Partridge Mm -hmm. uh, and the game show itself. uh, Or I guess I should say to the game show itself because they all either come in contact with the show or with people that are associated with the show. Um so, yeah, I guess uh, and it all takes place in one night, as I think a lot of people might know, and I kind of love that real-time settings and whatnot, which is essentially what this is, because even if it doesn't take place in one room the entire movie, it takes place almost in ten different rooms, uh, you know, in real time and whatnot. So that's kind of why I, just surface level, why I love this movie. But I think in order for me to fully express what it is I love about Magnolia, we have to take a little trip back to 2011. Oh, man. That was the first time I had viewed this film. Uh, Before I watched this movie, my favorite movie of all time was Rushmore. Uh, And before I watched Rushmore, it was who knows. Like, I never really had a favorite movie. Or if I did, it changed every month. Um, But... What I like to view Magnolia as is, like, my entrance into adulthood, even if I'm probably not an adult yet, you know? At least I can claim to be. <laughs> and uh, and Magnolia was that shift. I mean, uh, if Rushmore was what ignited my uh, love for cinema, Magnolia is what cemented it, and it told me that I was never not going to get something out of this medium, and specifically this film. Uh so, um, just, I don't even know where to start, but, uh, to break it down, I, this movie is dealing with so many different themes, uh, so many different characters, so many different locations, <laughs> the list goes on and on, and I think that's to its detriment for some people, so I can understand that, but I personally would not want this movie to be any other way, I would not want it to be a minute shorter than its three hour running time, I would not want them to cut any character, even if I like certain characters more than other characters, this all works together in a way that feels so true to life from my perspective that I have never been able to shake it. Um, so I guess I, I think we should just start randomly. Uh, one character in particular is the character played by William H. Macy, uh, uh, 
quiz kid, Donnie Smith is uh, his nickname, so to speak. And I think before this movie, I had never really seen quite a stand-in for my own internal psyche. And I'm, I'm not saying I'm quite the exact same way as quiz kid Donnie Smith, because it is a different thing literally uh, as far as how it's represented. But uh, I guess I should rewind one more time. But uh, So his backstory in the movie is that he was a child prodigy. He was on his way to maybe becoming one of the smartest people in the world. Um, and he appeared on the game show back in the 60s when it was, I think, first started and whatnot, and he kind of broke the record, and no one had ever been able to beat the record until present day when Stanley, the other, the, the only child actor in the movie, uh, plays a quid, uh, quiz kid prodigy who might be able to beat it, uh, which is another little link, even though those characters never meet or even learn of each other's existence. Um, so uh, with regards to his character... Uh, the the biggest thing I've never been able to shake about this movie before I just kind of get into general praise and whatnot is that as uh, as Quiz Kid Donnie Smith's character had to grow up, so to speak, uh, we kind of learned that he had a very tragic childhood in many ways because his parents were both uh, uh, controlling and neglecting because they took away his money after he won big, on the, but they let him keep the check because that's one of the saddest things. God like, damn, dude. Yeah. <laughs> that is like one of the saddest things. That they didn't just take his money, but they left him that to always remind him. They left him the biggest insult, <laughs> the biggest added insult to injury. Yes, and when you see that behind him during the uh, Amy Mann's Wise Up montage, like that's one of the most powerful images in the movie for me. Uh, so they, they took his money, and um, then... <laughs> To add insult to injury, he apparently gets struck by lightning at a certain point in his life, and I think it's implied that it was kind of in his childhood, too, because, at least for me, my interpretation of this his character is that ever since that moment, he not only kind of devolved, because he's not, I think, he was never able to quite get that same capacity for intelligence from that moment on, but he was also emotionally stunted in a lot of ways and so i guess here's what i should explain that i don't know that i am quite as uh emotionally stunted or even emotionally stunted at all but uh i completely uh have never seen a stand-in for something that's happened to me which is when i was a child i had a childhood illness uh and i'm not getting into the actual like terminology or anything like that but i walk away or i walk around every day with a tracheotomy star on my neck that is usually never covered up because that would be going out of my way to cover it up you know i'd be wearing scarves everywhere i go and i'm not doing that because i don't literally care about appearances or anything like that but it is a reminder to everybody i come in contact with that that is a part of my identity even though i haven't had a trach for over Let's see if I'm 24 now, probably over 15 years. So it is weird because it was this defining and formative moment for my uh, childhood that I always thought I would leave behind in some way. And I've quickly learned uh, in my adulthood that I never will and that it will always be a part of me both mentally and physically that I can't quite shake. And so his whole arc in this movie about how people only identify him as Quiz Kid and as the boy who was struck by lightning and yet also continually say things to him like, well, that was a long time ago. Why are you still wrapped up in that? You know, that perfectly, I think, segs us into what I love about this movie and I think the general theme, because many characters stated over, which is that we can, I, I think, we can never, I don't know what I want to say, but 
It's so hard for us to get through the present when we are constantly being reminded of our past. Yep, exactly. And I think that infuses every single character in this movie, and I think that is uh, basically the best thing about this movie, uh, for me, with a movie full of great things. And uh, I think his character is maybe, even if he's not the focal point, might be the best embodiment of that exact theme. So... Uh yeah, I guess I I kind of want to open it up now, and oh, but like that's right. like the that's that's the big kicker in the movie for me is that uh, that like I don't know just that ache that you feel in your heart for me at least that I can't escape no matter how much I'd want to and how that affects my ability to communicate emotions to other people and mm. his line about you know I have so much love to give I just don't know where to put it yeah. you know it's it's cheesy to some people but I completely understand how that manifests itself uh, as far as people think that people grow up. We never do. We just get older. And so, yeah. So, does anybody want to start off? Alex? I will I will go first. Okay. Um, I actually probably, I'm, in fact, positive I actually saw this film before you had seen it. Yeah. So, I, I'd seen this in the, like, probably like 2007 or thereabouts. That was the first time I had seen this film. And this was the fourth time I've actually watched it all the way through when I watched it for this episode. And I, I think it, uh, I have a real um, love-hate relationship with this film because although I do think it's a absolutely fantastic film and it's um, one of Paul Thomas Anderson's better films and he's had he's got films that are truly terrific because yes. he really, even though I like films more than others, he only makes good films. I agree. Uh, and he he just does, he, he is a true film director who actually is trying to make a work of art for you to watch on the screen. Uh, that being said, I, I just, for some reason, always love this film for the first hour or so. And then, for some reason, I think I'm going to raise my rating of what the film is. And then, by the end of the film, I'm right at the same place that I started, really. Which That's because the past is not through with you. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> this fucking guy. I, I just really think that I, I, I really like what this film is doing. But for some reason, I just cannot have that, that same kind of connection that, that our people have to this film for some reason. I... I, I just feel like I'm I'm watching a really good story, but I'm I'm not as invested in it as other people are who yeah. watch this film. That being said, though, there are so many standout moments to this film, and, and so many reasons to watch it. Um, for for a guy who has spent his whole career trying to play the same character, Tom Cruise is just totally putting it out there and playing a complete sexist piece of shit asshole in this film and it is just glorious dude can i can i talk about my reaction to, yeah this uh, is a great uh, analogy to, by okay the way. so what's what's the name of his character again? frank tj mackey frank yes. tj mackey okay so i was really before you start i just want to say that i watched this with toussaint mm. last night for his first time viewing yeah and he was not prepared for Frank T.J. Mackey. I, I didn't know anything about this film before going into it. Yeah, he was like uh, General Smithers in The Hateful Eight. Like, yeah, exactly. Cringing underneath his blanket <laughs> I know. as the, he's subjected to this. Exactly. So. Like like him going through his basically the proto the, the prototype of the men's rights activism like yeah. like whole shtick or whatever. Like I turned to Nick and I was just like, oh my god. Every time this guy opens his mouth, it's like somebody like ran up, snuck behind me, and just perched their dick on my shoulder like a parrot. <laughs> I just kept on cringing like, ugh, gross, what the fuck? 
and it just kept and they just keep on doing it. it just keeps on happening what the fuck this is why it is always fun to watch movies with two sons. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So that was my my experience of uh, of Tom Cruise's character. Well, I I, th- I think that's what's so great about him. It's not only the physical aspects of his his crazy out there um, male chauvinist chauvinist yeah. behavior, but it's his hair that's got the crazy it's that leather vest over over the brown like yeah. uh, suede. Uh, yeah, it's but he he looks just... like Vanilla Sky. <laughs> I I, th- I think the scary part of this film is that he is so emphatically enthusiastic about his cause that it's just it's frightening like this is this is why people like hitler were able to rally so many people to their cause bro i've seen people like that in real life in chicago right and i love for me at least uh, i think because i definitely think that he's the character that this film circles back to as far as like showcasing and giving the i would say the the biggest arc possibly it's it's hard to really tell but um and I, what I love about his character is that I didn't think by the end of a three-hour running time, the first time I watched it, that I would feel something for him. And it, I think it's a testament to both Tom Cruise's performance mm. and the script that it is somehow, by the end of the movie, able to set aside those, I would say, beliefs uh, in two ways. And A, to show what informs them, because he is very much reacting to his childhood, as everybody in this is in this movie. Uh, and B, but also, and I think this is another central theme of the movie showing that pain is relative to who you are and not to other people well and i I think the 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 important part of of his character for me and why i think for me at least he's the most interesting character in the film uh is that we find out throughout the course of the events of the film that he pretty much was was abandoned by his father big earl partridge and he ends up taking care of his dying mother throughout yep. the, the her 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 life, and then when she finally dies from cancer, and the fact that he should have so many like feelings towards women because he took care of her, and he went the complete opposite way. Well, it's not it's even... because he had to. Yes. He he created this disassociative personality well, in order to distance himself from the the scar and the pain. But of I, I think that's that. why I'm saying why he's the most interesting character for right. me because. Lot and, and we can get into talking about logic yeah. throughout this film because that's another theme that, that comes in throughout. But logically, if if you're just looking at it from an outside perspective, he and grew not, up with only femininity, then why doesn't he respect it? Right. Yes. And, and yeah. he's just the complete opposite of right. what he should probably be feeling, and he just goes the complete 180 way, which I think leads to for my for me at least my favorite scene of the entire film, where this complete persona he's created completely breaks down when he's you know, screaming and mm. telling his father to fuck him and then when he sees that he's about to die just has this extremely genuine feeling crying moment that yeah. is the complete opposite of him jumping up and down on Oprah's couch like it it yeah. feels like a real actor doing that I, and it was I made good. that joke that he would yeah. start like jumping up and down on, <laughs> on, on his father's uh, bed grave and just like start like yelling at him to be fair this did take place before Tom's yeah. uh, uh, I know but it's still the it same this, guy oh no You're it still is watching and, the same guy it is and, and I think this and eyes wide shut, uh, drum crazy or something. <laughs> yeah, but uh, really, really quickly before I pass off to Tucson, um, you know, I I think for for me, I really love so much about this film, and I, I love details about the characters. But I go in and out of really liking them. Like I really 
am interested, even though he's a horrible person, in Jimmy Gator yeah. early in the film and then again later in the film. But, you know, when he's on the host, when he's hosting the show, I'm not as interested in that part of the storyline. He's like, yeah. And I feel the same way about a lot of the other characters that I kind of go in and out of how much I'm interested in what they're doing. Yeah. But I will say for me that the absolute standout part of this film and the, the part every time that I watch it, and maybe this is why I think I'm going to like it more than I end up, end up ultimately doing but during the early scenes when they're describing those three separate stories, the final one that involves the uh, kid trying to commit suicide. Yes. And then he ends up, he wouldn't have died because there was a net, but he gets shot by his own mother and he ends mm. up being an accomplice in his own murder. Yeah. Every time I watch that, I am just marveled by the way Ricky Jay tells that story and that way it just plays out. And the arrow that's shown off yeah. of there, off like the top the, of the building. I just love that part so much. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I really do enjoy this film. I, I, want, I may seem like I'm coming off that I didn't like it. Like, I really like this film, but there's just some parts that aren't my favorite and that I like as much as others. So. That's my ultimate feelings of Magnolia, and I've seen it a bunch, and now Toussaint, who saw it for the first time yesterday, gets to give his feelings on it. Okay, so I have a lot of feelings about this film. Um, first off, I have to say that my absolute favorite performance of this film, for me, was uh, John C. Riley's turn as Officer Jim. Just yes. because, for me, I'm not used to seeing him in dramatic roles, and apparently, to my to what I've I've learned from Nick is that before he kind of like hitched himself to the uh, Adam McKay world, the Adam McKay world, the wagon that is the Adam McKay world, and just kind of like totally um, rolled hauled his his dramatic career into just like comedy. Like he was a dramatic actor, and I can totally see that working in this this context because like I I like his character because he's such a dork. He is a dork, but he's also he's not like a like a Paul Blart sort of cop. He's he's. He's very earnest. He's very wholesome, but he's not completely incompetent. No, he's like the person that I would want as a cop yeah. responding to whatever I yeah. call for it. Not because he would do the best job, but mm -hmm. because he would, I think, be the only person who would be genuinely concerned for the other people. Exactly. Hand. It's like it, it even goes back to the very first scene um, when he's talking over the um, – the, the the opening title song, which I have to take a step back from that and just talk about that, yeah. in that it is it is phenomenal. I've watched that scene after the fact alone on YouTube maybe yeah. like eight times today, I, and it never stops being one of the most fucking beautiful things I've seen in recent memory. Like that Amy Amy Mann's like or, like original recorded like like songs coupled with John Brion's like score. original score is just absolutely fucking exquisite. I just I, I love I love the musicality of this film. It's so good. She's almost a character in the movie. Exactly. And yeah. It's perfect. Yeah. Yeah. She's like the, the the siren that's kind of like at the at the at the edge of the stage, just kind of like serenading like this this entire like human spectacle writ large. And like I okay, so I'm gonna go back to Jim. When he's sitting down and he's like he's He's in, in the class with the rest of the, the police officers. You overhear the lecture. He's like, you know, serve and protect, blah, blah, you know, all that bullshit that's on the side of your car. And I'm just like, well, at least back in 2000, they were keeping it 100. At least then they were, they were being fucking honest about this shit. Yeah. It's like, we know what's up. Um, His storyline, I think, has the most danger of being colored mm -hmm. by real life, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, as far as, like, it's 2016 and things are a little bit different yeah. as far as what's public knowledge and what isn't. Mm -hmm. And... 
that his whole storyline, like, I'm always amazed every time I rewatch it that I don't actually cringe by his incompetentness because it seems genuine, like, that he's a flawed human being and, and not a racist yeah. uh, person. Or exactly. Like he's, he's just, like, he's just working through it. He's he's just trying so hard to work through it. Like, uh, the... And, and going back to the, the the opening scene, like before the actual title sequence, where it's just kind of like this um, this this microcosm of some of the, fi- the the themes that the film will actually explore with this guy, like being like like what Alex said, like he's he's a uh, an accessory to his own murder. Like immediately after watching that, I turned to Nick, and it's just like this reminds me of that anime series you showed me, Bakano, because it yeah. has that same type of like um like mosaic pastiche sort of like this person was doing this thing and doing this thing in 1987 or 2001 or in, in 1915 or something like that and all comes to a head in a, in a wonderful way in that it the entire film for me felt like something that was very reminiscent of the aforementioned Bacchano but also the dialogue and interactions of just that part including the entire film I felt were very much reminiscent of a of a synergistic combination of Thomas Pynchon and David Foster Wallace. Yep. And I, 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 I absolutely just loved it. And I want to like, I, I don't want to take too much time, but I want to talk about like four of my favorite, like, <laughs> I I'll, just want to talk about every single no, thing. I no, I want to, no, I want to talk about four of my favorite instances <laughs> of, never take up of, too much time. of symbolism and I will be succinct with them and I'll let the, Even the, if you aren't. the actual viewer explore for themselves. Okay. Yeah. First up, by viewer, you mean listener, right? The listener, of course. The, the, <laughs> the viewer, viewer of the, the movie. The viewer of the film and the listener of the podcast. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> First up is Freemasonry, okay? There's Freemasonry, like, uh, ideology and, and sayings and all this other, like, symbolism throughout the entire film. Like, Ricky Stanley J. Stanley even has a book about Freemasonry. Yeah, exactly. Yes. He has a book about Freemasonry, and I actually pointed this out to Nick. You did, yeah. Who's seen it multiple times. Seen it multiple times. That the TV producer, who is, like... Um, patting Gator on on the back and actually tells him to like cut to the cards or whatever. He has a Freemason like ring on his hand, and he actually gives the the the, the farewell of uh, the Freemasons. And what's interesting, really quick, is yeah. that that's played by Ricky Jay, who is also the narrator. Exactly. So it's, he's the first person to comment on the idea or ideology behind serendipity mm-hmm. and chance, and almost like I would say. Consp- Conspiracy laden like connections, so yeah. to speak. Yeah, like um, there's, and 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 I I found this other one where it's just like the name of the store that uh, Solomon. Yeah, Solomon and Solomon, yep. which is supposed to represent like who, who like who's the the quiz master, the quiz boy, Donny uh, Donny Smith. Donny Smith. Okay, Donny Smith works at Solomon and Solomon. Which, if you know, like biblically, the story of King Solomon, he was one. He was supposed to be one of the wisest men in the Bible. He also had like a huge family of concubines, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, <laughs> a lot of people do some shady shit. Yeah, a lot, a lot of good people otherwise do a lot of shady shit. Um, but Solomon, Solomon is supposed to represent not only a wealth, like material wealth, but also emotional wealth in knowing how to love. Yes. Like that's exactly what Donnie's talking about. It's like yes. I have so much. I have so much love, but I don't know where to put it. Where to put it? Yeah, and it's like, and, and uh, just echoing off of like like Nick's own, own sentiment about that. Like, I totally felt where Donnie was coming from in that instant when he said that, and it's like, you know what? It, I think maybe at some point in my in my younger life, I fought the same thing too. Yeah. Um, and another thing which I wrote about, I just read about recently that uh, a friend of mine, uh, Jim Turner, who is a filmmaker from New York. Like he sent me this article about symbolism from Magnolia, and apparently, 
um, Paul Thomas Anderson mentioned offhand when when the interviewer was asking him, he's like, come on, can't you give us something? I was like, well, you know, there was this really cool story I heard once about uh, Magnolia, which is which represents the the firmament where ships go when they are lost. So it used to be like a an urban legend that every single time that like, something inexplicable would fall out of the sky, say an anchor, then it's like, oh, it must have come from Magnolia or something. And he's like, and it just happens to be a coincidence that it <laughs> that it kind of like is is synonymous with Magnolia. Hmm. Hmm. What uh, a coincidence! What a coincidence! Thematically appropriate. And then my my final one, which I think just ties into. Um, just the entire construction of this film is the entire theme of chaos theory. It's mentioned multiple times, especially on the quiz show. And for those who don't know what, what chaos theory is, like I actually looked this up. Like It's the mathematical field of study that monitors the behavior and conditions of dynamic systems that are highly sensitive to initial conditions, a response otherwise known as the butterfly effect. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think that's definitely integral to this movie as mm. far as like the how these people are continually faced with reconciling with the choices they made mm. in the past and how that somehow brought upon their future. Yeah. And of course, that's essentially what the I would say the true climax of the movie is, which is all of them singing "Amy Man's Wise Up." Get those lyrics. It's not going to stop until you wise up. Uh, is just the most heartbreaking thing in the entire movie for me because here the movie was almost, I would say, positing the idea that it's not their fault mm-hmm. and that that their childhood trauma or their daddy didn't love them enough. You know, all these things that happened to them formed them the way they are. But then it kind of undercuts that mm-hmm. and says, "But they're the ones making their future." And, exactly. And I think that's what makes us infallibly human is that we can never really wholly separate those two beliefs and that yeah. it's always this uncomfortable mixture of both and that that's that's what i love about this movie yeah um, can i also give a shout out to the probably the mvp of this movie for me acting wise and it's the um it's the guy that stands behind solomon at the store and says no need for braces donnie you don't, you don't need braces you don't even need braces donnie look every, at you look at your teeth you don't need any braces every time alfred molina would say like n- n- you know you don't need braces, like just him behind him going, no need for braces, Donnie. No, like, I no just, need for braces. I'm never going to get past that. Yeah. I just absolutely <laughs> love that movement, uh, yeah. moment. Uh, anyway, just a random thing throughout there. But Can I like yes. unpack like my, my Thomas Pynchon, like David yes. Foster Wallace thing? I think you might need to give him more context. Okay, so <laughs> basically Thomas Pynchon is like a very famous, very elusive, like notoriously elusive um, d- like American writer. Who He's, happened to write another film that – Paul Thomas Anderson adapted. wrote the wrote the book the the one adaptation on that yeah it's like inher- no one else has ever vice. made a Thomas Pynchon film as far as I know um like is he the only one who ever tried to do it I, th- I think some people have tried but I'm not sure if anybody else succeeded it's actually right yeah um, exactly nobody's ever going to be able to adapt V or yeah, Gravity Gravity's Rainbow no. hell no. no um but the whole like parallel that I had with Thomas Pynchon is that back when I was in college, like in American literature course, we read this story called Entropy, right, by Thomas Pynchon. It was basically 
just to sum it up, there's this guy named Meatball Mulligan. He's a dumbass, right? And he's celebrating his end of lease party by having all these people come to his Washington, D.C. Um, closed apartment stuff, right? And everybody's talking about philosophy and pop culture and baseball and other shit like that. And eventually the party just gets more and more out of control. More people start inviting themselves in. There's eventually like a, 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 an entire troop of fucking like sailors that come in thinking it's a whorehouse. And he basically locks himself in his bathroom like – Hunches in, 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 into himself and then finally like bursts out and tries to assume control of the entire entire situation and he does very faintly until it then again spirals out and then somebody like throws a uh, a, a rock or something out of a window and it in the entire like story ends and what that's supposed to be a metaphor is is that entropy is the second law of, is part of the second law of thermodynamics which says that the expenditure of energy will continue to go until eventually we have the the heat death of the universe like you can expel all this energy in this small space but eventually it will dissipate it's the movement from a closed system to an open system and that also parallels with this film as well because it's all these people that are trying to grasp for control of their lives in different ways but they realize that they're all going about it for the for for the most asinine of ways like Mackie who is who is trying so hard like after trying to take care of his dead mother and being abandoned by his father being surrounded by femininity his entire life like his only grasp that he has for control is trying to put on this this machismo like facade, really. this machismo facade of masculinity because honestly Honestly, he never had anyone to take after in the in his model of masculinity. Yes, and not only that, but also I think for as far as Earl Partridge walking out on him, mm-hmm. uh, I feel like that's a huge thing. And then not only that, but also the fact that because he did that, then all he could do, I think, from that moment on was create a narrative that only confirmed mm-hmm. Earl Partridge's action, which is, and I think ties into his kind of mental breakdown on stage when he said, men are shit, you know? Yeah. Um, and I, so, and I think Life's that, an abyss. <laughs> and I think that he, you know, created this facade also to essentially, like, make sense of what happened to him mm-hmm. uh, when his father left, uh, because, like, if he's that way, then there must be no redeeming qualities about, I think, human beings in general. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he, he, I think he he genuinely loved his mother, but uh, as far as men are shit, and we just do what we do to self-preserve, and we truly don't give a shit about other people, and it's this very cynical character in a movie that's not actually, I would say, all that cynical. Yeah. Uh, I think it's pretty hopeful, especially when you look at people like uh, Phil Parma, the yeah. uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman character, who might be the most like good-natured character in the entire movie. Because Which is bizarre coming from Philip Seymour Hoffman, because usually mm-hmm. I'm used to him being more of like... It's, it's weird. He, that guy was made of, of multitudes. I was going to say, he's, he's sorely done a missed. lot of shit, yes. Yeah. And yeah. this is one of my all-time favorite roles by him because I love the idea that and there's another character that I personally connect to, which is that um, – and I think also extends to the entire film, but his sense of empathy mm-hmm. is what keeps him going. Like he loves Earl, his client, despite any of the things he may or may not have done in his life because he just wants to take care of people, hence his profession. And the idea that like his drama only unfolds vis-a-vis other people is actually makes him one of the most saddest characters. Well, know? another thing I was going to say about his character, which I feel like is so great, is that he spends the entire first hour of the film attempting to both – deal with Earl Partridge and, you know, keep the fucking house under control while, you know, he's struggling. There's all those fucking dogs there for some reason. And then he, like, his, like, 
biggest goal in his life at that moment is to find a way to get Frank TJ Mackey on the phone, which involves him like calling a phone sex grocery service or, to <laughs> yeah. deliver uh porno bags. Porn mags including Do you still want the bread? <laughs> yeah. That's that's one of the, the best lines you, of the movie. The fuck are you what kind of sandwich are you gonna make? What kind of weird ass like kink do you have where you need <laughs> peanut butter, a loaf of bread, and some hustlers and shit? But I, I think what what is great about his character and, and his involvement in the story and really about all the characters and when they end up jumping into each other's lives is that he spends so much time and he gets so close to getting Frank TJ Mackey on the phone. He's like on the cusp of maybe like pushing through and getting to him after calling his like his pretty much his phone line, his like his sales line. And Julianne Moore's character comes in and starts screaming and throwing shit and yelling, Oh my God, you can't ever let that happen. He's like, well, that's what he wanted. It's what he wanted. So what do you want me to do? Like yeah. he's still a person right. and it's just, and that's the other thing too, is that I, I really, really like about the film. Um, the one character that I, I, other than Frank T.J. Mackey that I like this probably the second most is Julianne Moore's character because I feel like she is so like it's it's really hard to get a grasp at different points in the film very what his- her agenda is. It's very histrionic performance too like it's uh, just very over the top and melodramatic which I think a lot of people hate uh, from what I've heard. I personally love it because I think it's just another piece in the puzzle. I think everybody's giving very different kinds of performances yeah. and also her performance kind of ties into another thing uh, which is I think is very operatic and mm-hmm. I actually after Alex after we had taken that opera class <laughs> back at Aurora University when we took world opera mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I could not see this movie the same way again, at, at least in one degree to the left or right, because I, I actually think this might be the most, like, I don't know how I want to describe it, but, like, the most operatic movie ever made in, in ways that the parallels between the structure of this movie and an opera actually, I think... Uh, mirror each other, whether it's like via like recitatives, uh, as far as these characters only barely ever slow down and mm. you know, whatever. And that the fact that the music is always on, the score is pretty much continuing to plow through. Are you, well, are and, you... and I was going to say, a, a big, um, a big part of operas is usually they center around one major event that happens, which obviously is the game show. The game show. And, of course, opera itself is brought up in the movie Mm -hmm. uh, via one of the questions, and then, of course, we even have a a selection from Carmen uh, played over. Mm -hmm. One of the most mundane scenes, which is uh, Claudia and Jim first getting to know each other, which I absolutely love because the camera just sits in that room as they walk in and out, in and out, in and out, while one of the most famous uh, pieces of opera ever written is just playing in the background. And that is preceded by, oh, well, if you know that and you can sing in, in its native language it's an extra eh, 200 points it's just, like, it just like he pulled that number yeah, out of I, his I, ass I didn't, I, and, and then Stanley goes right in and yeah. does it I didn't even know like when he was reading off the actual like English like lyrics I had no idea but then when Stanley starts like singing it I'm just like oh my god yep. that's what it is like and I, and I wanted to, to go off of what you were talking about it being operatic and like you say it's one of the most operatic films you've ever seen but like are you cl- just to clarify yeah. this is one of the most operatic films that you've ever seen that is in no way trying to adapt an opera itself correct like yeah. like without like because this is a very personal story and mm. it it has no source to be adapted from uh, yes i mean like a movie that's not 
literally trying to be either A, an opera, like a filmed opera, or B, to take a story from an already established opera. Uh, there's just something about this that screams operatic in a way that, like, I feel like every time I ever I use that word about any other movie, when mm-hmm. I say, oh, it's operatic, like, I feel false because this movie exists. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so it's just a really random tick. Uh, um, I think, w- as far as kind of moving on to different areas of this movie... Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I, I absolutely love is uh, Jimmy Gator, the character, uh, played wonderfully by one of my all-time favorite actors, <laughs> Philip Baker Hall. Um, his character is, to me, like the flip side of Frank T.J. Mackey in, in, in the way that our view of him completely, I would say, changes uh, by the end. Whereas like, I think we grow to like Frank T.J. Mackey a little bit by the end, mm-hmm. and we grow to hate Jimmy Gator uh, a lot by the end and and that revelation of him uh in the house with his uh with his wife is easily one of the saddest and i think uh what's her name uh, who plays his wife is it not melora walters because that's uh claudia claudia is uh, one was my second favorite next to um jim j- next to jim just because like of how learning her story like you really understand why this woman does what she does. And it's so unbelievably tragic. And like, I'm going to probably like circle back to like, talk about like one of my absolute favorite moments of this film, but like it does involve Claudia and does involve Jim. And it's, it's, it's absolutely like beautiful. And it's Melinda Dillon that plays uh, Rose Gator. Uh, and her performance is maybe the most subtle, not because she's quiet or anything like that, but as far as like she's only given very, I would say, little screen time to make her kind of moment work. And I think she pulled it off beautifully. But when she is essentially, uh, when, when her world comes crumbling down, when she finally... That's that's one of the saddest things I think about this movie is that Jimmy Gator's cancer diagnosis is unfortunately the downfall of her whole worldview and her, I would say, relationships with everybody because of a lot of different reasons, which is, A, of course, it means she's going to lose her husband, but then she's going to couple that with the fact that once she realizes that this is something that's been entered into reality and uh, and that Claudia still wants nothing to do with him, that's when her subconscious starts, I think, speaking up in her head, mm-hmm. and she starts to realize what she's been ignoring all along. And that scene when she uh, quizzes him, so to speak, um, about why Claudia doesn't talk to him anymore, and he can't really give an answer, and then she finally... Not only that, but then he follows... Or no, 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 he does this before, so... I, bespoke there but when he confesses to the fact that he cheats around and his so pathetic mm-hmm. uh plea of like I'm, I'm only saying this so that way i just didn't want you to sit there like a jerk and feel bad about yourself and this has nothing to do Bitch. with me um and so it's like once he's turned that key then she bursts that door wide open when she finally just says why doesn't our daughter talk to you and then when he won't answer and she's like i think you do know and he confesses that he thinks he thinks Things that she because thinks. that she thinks that he molested her, and then the whole scene he won't admit it, and that makes it all the worse because he's truly the most pathetic person. If like, I admit it, would you stay? Yes, yes. He even asks that question, and she, of course, says no. Like 
that whole scene between the two of them I, it's just one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie because it was it, it it only works because A one of my favorite actors is just giving a great performance and B somebody I was barely paying attention through throughout the entire film which I think is thematically appropriate probably to her plight which is that she was continually getting passed over as to her needs and what she was thinking about this whole thing and for her to now feel all that guilt about all the years wasted on the man she loves instead of the daughter she essentially let get away uh, is it's just, oh, man, that's just one of my favorite scenes. Uh, but yes. Yeah. Like, one, one last thing that I, I wanted to mention that I yeah. mentioned before, which was, like, the whole, like, David Foster Wallace, um, yeah. like, tie-in. It was just, like, for those who don't know, it's like, David Foster Wallace was another prominent like American writer who wrote one novel, one, one complete novel in his lifetime, which was infinite jest, which is considered like a, like a major classic. It's a huge ass book by the way. Um, and he was also uh, a professor of English for the university of Illinois Illinois, in Champaign. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Like he actually, um, gave a commencement speech, um, that was titled uh, "This Is Water" to basically uh, a an incoming class of, of freshmen and stuff, right? And that's and that speech is immediately like Magnolia made me think of that speech, particularly in one instance. And like I'm going to like paraphrase like what he was was like one point that he was talking about, which was um, in the day to day trenches of adulthood, there is no such thing as atheism. It's like even if you don't believe in God, you worship something. If you worship money, if you worship how much you actually have, then you'll never have enough. Never, ever have enough. If you worship your 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 strength, your physicality, your sexual allure, then the older that you get, the the more that you grow older, you will die a thousand deaths in that way. And it's just like, on one level, we all know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The whole trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. And what that quote, like, that's the most perfect summation of understanding, like, Donnie and Stanley. These two people that are on these two different spectrums of their life, both after after the glory and just on the cusp of that glory. That Stanley puts so much pressure on himself to try and measure up to his father's, like, will that he, he pees himself. He's trying to go to the bathroom, and everyone's t- telling him not to. And I'm just like, leave the fucking kid alone. Yep. Like, how can you be so fucking cruel? And he puts so much on himself. Like, he he worships his own intellect, and that's why he because it's the only way that he can earn the respect and validation of his father. And that's why he carries six books to the library every day. That's why he he consumes volumes. That's why at the end he breaks a window and he goes into the one place that he feels safe and at home, and he's reading about polymaths. He's reading about geniuses. He's reading about about the most most savvy and erudite of minds in the human history. And then you have Donnie on the other hand, a man who has worshipped his intellect before. He's what Stanley could become if he's not careful. Yes. Because as soon as you lose that, as soon as you lose that, that will destroy you. Yes. The things that you worship will destroy you if you let them. Can I say that I, I uh, my f- I think my favorite little part of the film and definitely for me, the most hilarious little moment of the film Mm -hmm. is I think the great marriage between someone who is striving for to be 
uh, you know, a, a really smart, which Stanley is, mm-hmm. even though he's still a child, mm-hmm. uh, and someone who is just very comfortable in being the, the kind of person he is, which is Luis Guzman's mm-hmm. character. <laughs> when the game show first begins, you and Stanley's, Stanley's giving all these like answers before Jimmy can even get the question out, and they just pan to Luis Guzman, and his perfect voice just goes, what the fuck is this? Yeah. <laughs> not to mention that he has the best uh, character, not character, but title card in the credits because it, you just see all these like Tom Cruise as Frank T.J. Mackey, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden you see Luis Guzman as Luis Guzman. It's, <laughs> it's just great. Going back to uh, to Donnie, like one of my favorite moments that I actually kind of laughed at, and I think I actually made Nick laugh a little bit too, was when he was in the bar and he's like trying to like, you, you realize that this person is his object of affection and there's this guy who's basically like a sugar daddy, whatever, right? I, don't, I never caught his name. He's just in this. His name is never mentioned mm-hmm. in the movie, mm-hmm. but the credits, this is a weird thing, yeah. uh, list the old man's name as Thurston Howell, which is the name of the uh, the old man in the couple in Gilligan's Island. Wow. So it has this okay. weird tie-in to uh, that, and okay. who knows why. Okay, but, so yeah. Thurst, Thurston Howell and Donnie are basically having this passive-aggressive like repartee back and forth, right? And eventually like Donnie stomps off. And Thurston Howell says, it's dangerous to confuse children with angels. And then just like without missing a beat, I was just like, well, yeah, duh. That's how you get pedophiles. And you just started breaking up. That was mostly because you took probably my favorite scene and you kind of threw some color at it that I don't really want to think about. But um, but yeah, that was that – was, explained that reaction. Uh, yeah. But that, that scene in the – Bar is probably my all-time favorite scene, maybe in any movie. Uh, and that also goes back to a personal thing. But uh, yeah, when he is trying to buy for Brad, the bartender's affection, uh, who we find has braces, and then we start to get a little more uh, into what he's going for. Uh, Donnie, I mean, uh, as to he's, I guess, getting braces to connect with him. And mm-hmm. I can actually understand that, for, not because I would do that as well, but uh, there, you come to a certain point in your life where you become so desperate for a a certain kind of affection that you've never gotten from anybody that you start to think of yourself as other people's saviors and that Mm. if you could just somehow let them feel like they can make a certain connection to yourself, then that will somehow fulfill your own uh, happiness. Do you think by the end of this film, everybody gets what they truly wanted? No. No. No, at least not everybody. Well, do you think... um, Pretty much most of the characters at, at the at the very core of what they really want in life. Do you think that the characters get what they actually want? I mean, we we get Donnie, who's who's like physically going to get what he wants because, because his fucking need, teeth is all fucked up, so he's going to probably going to need braces. Uh, Jim is, you know, his has made his way through, and he may now sort of relationship, but mm-hmm. maybe he got not. his gun back. Yeah, he got yeah. his gun back. Right. Yeah. Um, and we see Frank T.J. Mackey, who maybe all along wanted to, in the back of his mind, reconnect with his – or at least make amends. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't really know what happened with Julianne Moore's character, but maybe she went to somewhere where she thought she really wanted to have a suicide attempt. And now she's had that and maybe can come out the other side. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like even, well, even, even if it's um, – yeah. even if it's – in the back of their mind and, and not what they physically want to do in terms of spiritually and mentally. I feel like a lot of the characters get to a point that they needed to get to, to grow in some way. Well, I guess I will say that I agree and I disagree in the sense that I, I think each character does get what he or she wants, but it is a multitude of different, uh, I would say, 
emotional headspaces as to whether they actually like that anymore. Right. You know what I mean? So, like, yes, like, on the one hand, there, I think there's a multitude of, like, good and bad endings here in the sense that Jim and Claudia both get to connect with each other and kind of hopefully, I think, through the optimistic ending, for me, at least of that last scene, are probably going to move forward from their past insecurity or trauma uh, and move forward with each other, which is kind of something that they both need and wanted. But somebody like Donnie, uh, if if anything, I think only feels even more unfulfilled when faced with reaching that clarity that what he wants is stupid and is never going to make him happy because it's not like he's then offered an alternative. Yeah. Uh, so I agree that, yes, everybody does get what they want in some way because, uh, you know, that's uh, pretty much true. Uh, uh, but I still think it's even messier than that because yeah. I, I think, like, Stanley, does he really get what he wants? No, he, but, he but, just but says, I, I feel like... You uh, need to be nicer to me, and that's that's it. That's the only way. A lot of people are are deflecting things. In fact, and, in fact every character in the film is deflecting something and pretty much a lot of that is pushed to the side or pushed right through by the end of the film. And I, I guess that's more kind of what I was going for in terms of getting what they yeah. want. Because I feel like every character wants to really feel comfortable in themselves. And they something that has happened to them or is happening to them is not allowing them to be. And I think that I, I will agree in the sense that I think every character moves past what is currently bothering them at the start of the movie. Like they do reach a form of catharsis of either getting what they want and feeling happy about that or getting what they want and also feeling unfulfilled. So, for example, like, I don't think Donnie is going to go back to the bar, you know what I mean, or anything like that, but he's more, if anything, just attuned to his own psychological uh, neuroses and, unfortunately, you know, uh, has to now face that, uh, but maybe in a more healthy way. Um, yeah, were you going to say something? Uh, no, oh, no. Okay, I, I, I wanted to throw in just a, a, a little extra aside because there is a, a sort of like cut down uh, subplot about a murder, which, yes. bring, which brings uh, a worm. Yeah, the worm who is played by Orlando Jones, Orlando Jones, yes. the comedian from Mad TV. I'm just like, holy shit. I didn't know that until I actually looked it up. Well, because he's not actually in the movie mm-hmm. as far as his face is on camera. That's yeah. never, but that those parts were taken out. Yeah. I, I, w- I would love to rewatch the film and like watch the, uh, the, the deleted scenes for that because it's just, there incredible. is none because as far as I know that like that whole subplot was taken out, uh, except for the very beginning of the subplot, because we see Jim Curring's first initial response to the call, and then he talks to the kid, too, who I think the worm is his stepfather or mm-hmm. something. Like, he has some kind of connection to the little kid. Yeah. Um, and I think that's, of course, where that's one of the big red flags that I, I think a lot of detractors will point to and say, well, then why does this need to be in the movie if we don't get the rest of the story? So it's like, I totally understand that. However, all those scenes still work for me on different levels, whether mm-hmm. it be, I, I actually love that that's our introduction to Jim, it's him on the job because that's what means the most to him at that time in his life and what he takes pride in. And then we also get that complete deflation after he initially responds to the scenario. Then when we cut back to that part of the story, uh, all the other cops are actually giving the reports and he's just standing in the corner. And Why is he – he's the one who fucking did the job. Why, is, right. why isn't he doing that? I, I, I thought that was immediately weird when I saw that. I was yep. like, the fuck are these guys? And so just to those two scenes alone, we already pretty much get his central conflict 
conflict and how he feels like nobody does respect him in his job, even though he places so much pride in it. And that's got to be something that I assume, you know, would really hurt somebody and why you look for human connection outside of it, because you're not going to get it from a a place that just does not think of you as a person. The other thing being is that um, his interaction with the kid, I think, is both great and just hilarious because I just love his, uh, hey, Coolio, let's let's cut it with the lips. The kid's rap, which I thought was awesome. I actually had Nick pause and I was just like, who wrote this script? And I was just like, Paul Thomas Anderson. And I'm just like, this is actually kind of a good rap. I was like, I'm kind of, I'm kind of fucking surprised about this shit. I was just like, but the, we, we talked about this before when we were watching, watching the film, like last night is, is that Jim's not paying attention to the actual content, but only the, the curse words that are actually in the, 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 the whole thing. Cause if you actually look back, then like there's there's like foreshadowing in every one of his verses. Yes. I'm just like, what the fuck? Whether it's foreshadowing the movie itself with mm-hmm. the good Lord bring the rain in, you mm-hmm. know, which of course uh, when the sun when the sunshine fail, the good Lord bring the rain in, and yep. that's how you'll find the killer. Yep, and yeah. not only that, but he mentions the worm quite a few times, mm-hmm. so he does actually say who the killer is several, and he says that to the cop, like you're not even listening to yeah. me. I gave you my testimony. <laughs> yeah. So even though we don't know necessarily what would have happened with that storyline, do you think it's implied? that the worm storyline would have ended during the the finale of the film then possibly I don't know if it would have ended during the finale but I feel like it was supposed to have wrapped up around the time that Jim is chasing the suspect like it's not too far removed from that I don't think I don't think it's Hmm. supposed to be tied to the the true finale uh, I think it's supposed to technically wrap up because I actually read the original script a long time ago and I haven't read it since because I actually don't want it to be canon in my head I like the movie the exact way it is even if I can understand why somebody would want more closure on something that just gets brought up and then left to whatever but even actually I think this is a good segue into another theme uh, not just another theme but maybe even though I probably have said this already on the podcast but actually maybe the most crucial theme to the movie is also present in that scene scene with uh, Jim and the child because one of the big themes of this movie is the way adults do not validate children and their feelings and their thoughts and so of course we see that literally when Jim won't take him seriously uh, but that infuses almost every single conflict I would say of this movie even to the game show itself is adults versus children and not that but also the game show is called what do kids know which is the most condescending what do kids know yes it's the most condescending name you could like name a quiz show that's supposed to be kids versus adults not you know what do kids know? I think we already assume adults know everything, you know, so I love kids that. Kids say the darndest things. <laughs> yes. And so I love that little uh, element. And I think that in, uh, is everywhere in this movie as far as like it. And that's why Donnie, I think, actually has the ultimate rebuff when uh, uh, I, I know you laughed at it. But mm. when Thurston Howell says it's dangerous to confuse children with angels, that is a lot of adults mentality where it's like, you know, we don't want to pretend that children know anything about anything. Mm. And then Donnie just spits it right back at him and says, no, it is not dangerous because then you can actually craft a child that can actually maybe survive in this world like the Mm -hmm. moment you don't validate them at any age the moment they won't be able to survive at at any age and uh just that conflict that comes with that Um, but that's everywhere in this movie as far as parents continually not having the foresight to think about how their actions affect their kids because they'll be fine i'm the adult now therefore only my pain matters kids don't know anything and Mm. they're just going to grow up and you know so what do kids know kids say the darndest things (laughs) yes 
Yeah. Well, and another thing with, with parents is I think a lot of um, parents in, in this film have obviously lost their way in a way and, and maybe feel like they're, they're the exact opposite of when they were children now where, oh, I went through this, so now I'm going to get mine and my kids can do that when they get older, just continuing this awful cycle right. that's happening. Like we talk about Stanley's father who's just a terrible person yeah. and is, you know, keeps running him through there and says, oh, I have to do this. So let's make yeah. some fucking money. Like no one should have their child in an activity with the ultimate goal is to make money. They have to it. be the breadwinner. You should yeah. never have to make your child the breadwinner. That's well, and, up. and for a, a game show too. And I also love that uh, the other kids who never answer any of the questions throughout any of, of, <laughs> the, of those the film, kids. they all talk about their endorsement deals yeah. and that kind of thing. Like they're just riding on the coattails of oh, Stanley. Absolutely. And Stanley's just uh, sitting there like trying to answer all the questions and, um, you know, trying to, to really just be a good kid at the same time too. And he just, I feel like doesn't know how because right. he's been left completely ill-equipped from his completely clueless father. And not only that, but then just the other blatant example, which um, a film that includes probably hundreds of uh, adult completely disregarding uh, a kid, is when he has to go to the bathroom, and that's all that that uh, all that Felicity Huffman's character had to make happen, you know. Uh, and she can't even do that because she doesn't even take his word for it, so to speak. Like, and, and the TV producer is like, "What's wrong with him?" She's like, "I don't know." Yeah, I was like, "You bitch." Yeah, and that's another thing as far as. Uh, once you get to that point as an adult, you a lot of times I think uh, can make one of two decisions, and you can either be an Earl Partridge and uh, you know feel regret, and like because he even gives that monologue about how regret is the best thing you can feel mm-hmm. because even if you made those horrible choices, it changes you. Yes, it changes you, and you can at least hope to give other people a semblance of respect and maybe a you know apology uh, and i think that's what's so powerful about his last moment with frank tj mackey um so i guess that also means we should talk about the ending and the frogs oh my god i didn't know this before i watched the movie but apparently toussaint has a phobia uh, about uh, with frogs a, a childhood a graphic <laughs> like phobia of frogs yeah that it's just it's just so Oh my god! I I was I was, you you you'd think I I was trying to play like like fucking uh uh what's what's the 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 game where you try and like put your hands on like the the different colored circles and shit Twister. You'd think I was trying to play Twister the way that I was just morphing myself into into the folds of this couch while fucking frogs are flying everywhere. Yeah, that was a lot of fun to watch with you. Um. I guess we should start as far as like where this ending comes from is that it um, it comes from the beginning because this has been foreshadowed from the very first minute of the film all the way until it actually happens, both with the literal weather reports uh, and B, with the recurring motif of the numbers 8 and 2, which is everywhere. And even in the first three stories alone, you have it uh, 82 on the plane. You have Patton Oswalt at the blackjack dealer saying, all you need is an 8? Okay. Flipping down a 2. Oh, well, there's a 2. That's a 2. And I'm just like, I'm glad you like my work. Yes. Uh, so this whole, and then it starts even ramping in its specificity uh, because we see in the studio audience uh, a random audience member holding up a sign that says Exodus 8-2. And I love that in this very brief moment, I mean, I don't know how they really coordinated it so 
perfectly, but in the background, you just see a security guard walk down the steps and then just grab the sign angrily <laughs> and walk out. Uh, and then, of course, the most blatant example, which is the first time that Toussaint, and really most viewers, I think, catch on to it, uh, is the Exodus 8-2 bus stop sign, when it is just right there, yeah. right before the rain is actually about to come. Yeah, like like Nick told me not to look that up, but I knew it exactly Like as soon as the frogs fell. I'm just like, Exodus, Moses, yes. the king of Egypt. Oh, my fucking God. It's a plague of frogs. <laughs> so I guess I want to hear before I talk about it personally, but like, what are your feelings about raining frogs? And either A, do you like it? And B, uh, or do you like it or dislike it? And B, how do you think it fits in this movie? I thought the first time I saw the film that I was just completely caught off guard by it because yeah. I don't really know how you can watch it for the first time if you really don't know about it going in right. and be like, oh, yeah, that's, I was waiting for them to show up. I knew about it the first time I watched mm-hmm. it, and it still catches me off guard because it, it's so literal. I mean, it just starts raining frogs. And it's so – I feel like the the great thing that's on a um, technical level that this film captures is – both the like incredible likeness of it in terms of the way that they showed the frogs falling, but also the sound where it's just like I can't imagine and watching this in a writhing. Like yeah, I can't imagine watching this in a theater and just hearing with the like amazing sound system that like like the sound system they had in some of the theaters we saw at Sundance, like with with the on the top of a roof. The um the the, the two examples that are my absolute favorite. Uh, are when they show the pool and you see them falling into the pool and yeah. the water just like shooting up and steaming and like the most like I don't know why it's just the most beautiful image of the film and it's so so morose and horrible but for some reason it's it's the view for me that always is just it sticks with me for some reason which is the ambulance with all of the blood spots all over it just yeah. struggling and then finally just veering off and Pretty much flipping over. Flipping over, and then not only that, but sliding directly in front of the hospital door. Like, that's where it's supposed to end up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And that image, for some reason, I, it's some about the all the blood all over the ambulance. It just gets me every time. But I feel like I, I actually like the frog ending now a lot more than I used to. And at the same time, I like that I feel like... Um, the frog ending is actually up for debate of what the film was actually going for, even though the 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 Exodus thing is all there for you if you really want it. And then I, I think that is something that people want to latch on to. But at the same time, we still get the weather reports, which are given throughout the film, which no one really gives a clear explanation of what those are. And we have the relation to... Um, the second story that's shown in the beginning where the water is picked up by the plane and then dropped off. And that's where the guy who Nick, as you mentioned to me, is actually kind of dressed like a frog yes. gets dropped <laughs> out of the tree. Yeah. Oh, great. And, flippers. Yeah. Yep. and I, I'm, I know I've, I don't have it right written. Uh, I don't have it right in front of me, but I have heard about the, the rare occurrence of um, a, a weather system picking up either a water or some other type of, of, of living life. Amphibious creatures. Yeah and, yeah, and dropping it in a certain different place. Mm-hmm. What, what I, I think I like most about it, and, and something that I have never really been able to decide, and I think that is what the film is actually trying to say, is that 
you can't really decide one way or the other. Like it, it is one or the other or something completely different, but you're never going to know exactly what it is. Even if you have theories about it, like there's never going to be an answer just like, um, you know, religion or something like that. Like you're never going to get an answer of, because uh, Paul Thomas Anderson certainly is going to be like, yep, it was the weather. Like, I don't think he's going to be doing that. And yep. I guess that's why I like it so much more than I initially did. I guess I did really like it the first time just because it was so out of the blue and I did not expect it. I'm like, oh, fuck, frogs. Yep. Oh, shit. I got to say that I love that whole sequence and not that this should be a surprise, but uh, for two main reasons, which is that, uh, A, I love that it actually, for me, crystallizes the point of the movie, which uh, I've, uh, I probably have said that phrase a lot of times, so I think there are many points, but whatever. This is one of them. Uh, but that pain is universal, and it looks the same to everybody, mm. but in a, another way, is completely unimaginable. Uh, and I think that, you know, like when this very literal thing happens to all of these characters, uh, so to speak, it's something that from the outside looking in, like it looks unfathomable, uh, but it's like everybody experiences it. And that's what brings us all together. And that's going back to the theme, one of the themes in the movie, which is that if pain is universal, then why are we caught between both? uh, I would say it's what makes us pull away from other people because we like to compare our pains. Like there are so many times when people will say, well, like if somebody is complaining about the fact that they lost a diamond ring. Oh no, somebody... I definitely have cancer. <laughs> and somebody is, um, <laughs> I'm sorry. I had to make a room reference. <laughs> okay. All right. And if somebody, <laughs> but if somebody is trying to like, say like, Oh, like for example, just to repeat my analogy, like, if somebody's complaining about the idea that they lost something that might be a material thing, like a diamond ring, and then somebody is complaining about that the fact that they lost a parent, uh, I'm of the belief, and I know a lot of people disagree with me on this, but that pain is, like I think I said earlier in this episode, is relative only to the person that experiences it and not to other people. If you have not lost a parent then you, you know, you A, you can't empathize with that fully because uh, you just can't. Mm -hmm. And B, you shouldn't also have to because that's unfortunately, and yet fortunately, not your basis for pain, you know. And so therefore, if somebody is as upset about losing a diamond ring as somebody is about losing their parent, they're not crazy, they're human. Because that is the sum total of their experiences and their, and their pain. And that, so that's kind of what sums as far as it becomes a very literal thing as far as they're all connected by this thing that they also can't quite possibly fathom. And the other reason why I love this crazy sequence is that I love everybody's reaction to the frogs. And I think it says everything about their character. And I, I feel like at first glance, it might seem like they all react the same, but they actually don't. Uh, I love that a Jim's reaction is to help another person. Like he just almost ignores it. Like he sees somebody in help. And so he just gets back into cop mode and he shows that he is actually competent at mm -hmm. his job. I, I love that. Uh, um, Phil Parma has the only like, uh, almost, completely believing and logical reaction, which is he just said that out loud, hey, why are there frogs uh, falling from the sky while another human drama is playing out in front of him because he's always on the outside. Uh, and so because of his place on the outside, he can see these things for what they are. Uh, I love that it uh, it sends uh, uh, Rose Gator uh, even closer to her daughter because the frogs rain down right pretty much in front of her apartment that's what sends her to running for the only human connection that she is going to find comfort in and and just everybody's like you know reaction i think are actually 
perfectly uh, – Donnie almost doesn't even seem like he notices because he's too concerned with his own internal pain. Uh, and, I, and I think it, that spreads throughout every character. And, like, uh, so, something that you mentioned to me, Nick, is that you know, your reading on, on the finale is not about what exactly happened, but does it really matter? And I think that's yes. something interesting that I'd like to hear you talk more about. Yeah, and I think that's actually like like when you see a movie like this, that the first impulse is I think to like Wikipedia, you know, uh, rain. What's up with the frogs? Rain phenomenon. And go go to see if there's a there's a like David actual... Lynch Mulholland Drive website for Magnolia somewhere. Yeah. Oh man, don't even tease me. That would be great. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like that's your first impulse is to explain it. Uh, and yet that's also, for me, the wrong impulse to follow. And I think that actually usually, once again, tying that back to the idea of pain, when we hurt, we try to figure out the source of the pain instead of trying to f- just basically accept it and then move on. Because if we try to trace it back, we're not going to actually get any better off. We're just going to probably have a false answer because we're not, I think, the we should never try to diagnose ourselves as much as you know uh so a lot of people try to so yeah i i I think that falling in line with the idea of uh serendipity and chance like this is supposed to be just like the narrator says just one of those things and you know it is in the humble opinion of this narrator that this cannot be oh no just one of those things right like i think he's cheekily making that joke to kind of say like you know uh, this is like the further you read into this, the more lost you're going to get because that's when you start to empathize and give meaning to your pain. And that's why you can't move on from, mm-hmm. from your own trauma. So I love that it acts as this like cathartic, like try to, you, you think life is meaningless? Try this precise <laughs> yeah. uh, moment that everybody has to kind of move past. And I think they ultimately all do. And that's like the big, one of the most cathartic moments it, of the movie. It is a moment of catharsis. Like I'm, I'm probably not going to have as long of an analysis of the, the, the raining frog scene is you guys, but like, like this entire, which I think is the point, the entire film, uh, the entire point of this film, it, it, it's filled with, with, with biblical parallels. Obviously the most obvious one is the raining frogs. But then when you just like take a step back and look at the long view of this entire film, it's really like a trial of Job. It's yeah. really, everyone's going through their own lamentation where like, like in, in in the story of Job, like he loses everything. His he's he, he loses his wife. He he loses his children. He loses his home. He loses his farm. He loses his his ability to 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 exist as a healthy human being. And yet he gives himself entirely over to the inexplicability of the universe because he can't fucking understand it. But he still tries to like endure it all the same. Yeah. And it's just damn. If that is <laughs> if if that is not like. If this is not one of the greatest like film extrapolations of the entire trial of Job for all these characters, I don't know what the fuck is. Yeah, and it's incredible. Yeah, and speaking of trial, I kind of mentioned this to you, mm-hmm. Tucson, is that that's one of the things I love about the structure and why I would not want it to be a single minute shorter. But this is a three-hour film that is, in my opinion, very purposely three hour film because the first hour is everybody basically getting to the place where they enter their trial and I think the second hour which is completely bookended by the start and the finish uh, of the game show episode itself is everybody going through their trial you know for Frank it's that interview that will actually dredge up the past for the first time against his will for uh, you know Stanley and Jimmy it's the idea can you still 
well for Stanley, it's can you, you know, are you still going to try to please these uh, masters of your life mm-hmm. or become your own person? For Jimmy, it's like, can you still exist in a world where you're just your your I would say your stature is ever so slowly or fastly I would say decreasing because now with cancer you're you're going to become irrelevant pretty soon. It sounds bad, but it's true. Um, and, uh, you know, everybody else is like entering their trial, whether even if it's something simple. And I think that goes to this character as well. Phil Parma's trial of just trying to get Frank to recon, you know, because he is a selfless person. And can he do that for someone else just to, you know, make somebody else's night and so on and so forth. Uh, uh, that's what I, I love about this structure. And I think that the word trial is very apt because I think that's what everybody goes through. Evan, mm-hmm. the, the third hour is how everybody is going to actually come out of their trial and whether it's going to have a profound effect on them or not. And I think it's actually kind of varied from character to character. Uh, but yeah. Yeah. So what do you guys think about uh, the, I, I wouldn't say the, the biggest thing that happens with the frog, but the biggest action that is taken away from the, the frogs, which is the frog falling through the ceiling window and uh, knocking the gun out of Jimmy Gator's hand. Um, what do you think that is a saying? Is it it is it's falling to kind of um not give him the satisfaction of dying and like force him to go through this cancerous struggle or or do you think that has even though I know we're talking about it being you know meaningless and we, we shouldn't have the meaning I feel like that's the one scene that I feel like you have to take something from, at least I I, I think so. So yeah. what do you guys think I, about that scene? I personally kind of and I guess this is more reads into my own uh my own hope i guess but really i i kind of see it see it as the the catalyst of if not redemption then at least like the road to redemption he will never be able to fully make up for the pain that he has caused his loved ones his his wife and his and his daughter but the now way he gets the, to live with it. The, you have to live with it. You have to bear <laughs> that. You got to carry that weight, and ultimately, the way that, in which you live is going to define you. Like that, that thing that you did, the pain that you caused, the pain that you have inside of you, that defines you now. Your regret. Don't let go of that regret. Like yeah. trying to kill yourself is is the re- the revocation of that regret. Your regret will now manifest itself into the rest of your life, and now what will you become, and what kind of person can you be from that? Yeah, I mean, he learns the ultimate lesson, or one of the ultimate lessons in life, which is that you don't get to decide when you hurt other people, only they do, and that's something that he's never quite ever (laughs) grasped, because it's all about him, and so this very moment... What you just said, like, that... Yeah. I know, I know. This is to- totally un- unconnected to it, but yeah. like that's exactly like the one quote from Louis C.K. No, it is actually. From, I was from, quoting from, from, Louis from the C. show K. where he's just like, "You don't get to yeah. decide yeah. when you hurt people. Like, you yeah. don't get to just do that." It's like, damn. Yep, yeah. and that that's yeah. I was actually quoting because I love yeah. that show. Yeah, uh, Louis, it's yeah. a great show. Uh, which is actually kind of a very similar t- mm-hmm. tone because it, it that show is both in a dialogue with the meaninglessness of life and yet the the meaning we can mine from it, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. Um, yeah. For me, that frog moment is the ultimate, like the snake eating its own tail moment of, is this divine intervention or is this just one of those things? And I think it, it becomes this litmus test of what you read into it. And that's why I also hesitate to read into it because I, like I can't make up my mind because I think so many things in this movie continues to tell the audience that these things happen every day. And, 
Therefore, there is, I guess I come out on the, the other side and probably leaning towards meaninglessness, that these things happen every day. Therefore, none of them can possibly have meaning. Yeah. Uh, and I love the little zoom in on the, uh, the, the painting in Claudio's uh, mm. apartment when, as the frogs are happening, it just zooms in on a little phrase that said, but it did happen. But and, it did happen. You know, it's kind of like you're, it's the reaction in the face of your own disbelief of what's, what's happening. And, yeah. and it validates y- your pain. Mm-hmm. Uh and I think ultimately that's what I also love. Just moving right ahead to the final scene. Oh my god! Of the movie, that final scene. That is without a doubt my favorite final shot of any movie. And also, I'm going to bring up another theme that I actually have not even talked about. But another reason why I love Magnolia is because it is a movie about the power of movies without actually mm-hmm. being that. You know, like with. Uh, and what I mean by that is that because, you know, Roger Ebert famously called movies uh, like basically the world's biggest empathy device where, mm-hmm. you know, you could watch movies and learn about other people and, you know, other people's feelings and whatnot. I think Magnolia is like a one in a long line of those kind of movies that completely validate that, I would say, summation of what I love about movies and that I what I want to get out of them, which is to go see a movie and learn a little bit about myself and somebody else in the process. And because I think that's a two-way street. You yeah. can never do one without the other. So when, besides just rewinding back to Phil Parma scene when he's on the phone and he, I would say he bends the fourth wall. He doesn't necessarily break it, but he says, you know, I, I know this sounds like a, this is a scene in the movie where I'm trying to reconnect, but th- this is that scene. And I think they have those scenes in the, in the movies because they really happen. And, and I love that that's also gets to the heart of like, but it, that phrase, but it did happen is that a lot of people get so hung up on like, the images on screen rather than the meaning behind them and that's what and that's so not what I'm about when I personally watch movies is I just want to make a connection with a human being even if they are quote unquote characters and but then there are there are audiences that are such die hard literalists where they'll yeah. just they'll stretch whatever like plausibility that they can and it's like well you see no the frogs didn't actually happen it was just a mass illusion brought on by MK Ultra <laughs> like, fuck yeah. that guy <laughs> And and this train of thought directly uh, is kind of I wouldn't say reference, but is like uh, there's a line in a different movie, uh, Nymphomaniac Volume uh, Volume Two. Oh, no, I still need to watch that. It's a volume. I forget which volume it is, but you know, it's a Nymphomaniac. Uh, after a after the main character, as she's retelling her story, reconnects and accidentally runs into her her past lover, and it's a very extreme coincidence. And she tells the person she's telling the story to, "What do you think you would get, mo- or how do you think you would get more out of my story by believing in it or not by or not believing Actually, in I it?" Think. That might be at the very Part end of Volume One. one. Volume yeah, I think, one, yeah. I think it is as well. I yeah. just forget because it's the cusp of Volume One mm-hmm. into Two. You were, and I, you may be leading up to it. So if you are, I'll, I'll step back and no. let you keep the steam going. But what were you going to say about the the final scene of the film? So, uh, uh, yeah. So the final scene of the movie, uh, once again, I think goes back to that theme of like what movies can do for people uh, if they wanted to do that for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that final moment, uh, besides the fact that Amy Mann's song uh, Save Me is playing and is asking that's a song is literally asking will you save me? And, uh, and I don't think that's actually a song about uh, characters specifically. I think that's more of a uh, 
for me at least what I get out of it and that's the beauty of movies uh, is that it's more of a comment on uh, you know giving yourself over to a movie and trying to get your pain validated so when John C. Riley's character is giving his big monologue about how he's going to stay with her and mm-hmm. he's not going to let he's not going to stand for her thinking she's inferior to how she really is and all that whatever um, that song is playing and we're never moving that camera ever once so it is a little more character based than it is cinematic uh, and then the final chords of the song happen as she looks up at the audience and smiles. Uh, that's what I want out of a movie, uh, personally. It's something to make me feel less alone and that this, you know, was made for me in a way, the same way somebody else might feel the same Dude, way. I clutched my heart when I, when I saw that scene. Like, like, literally, I clutched my heart because it was just like, it really fucking touched me because, like, she's gone through this whole ordeal. Like, uh, Melora Walters as, as Claudia? Yes. Yeah, like, I, heard, I thought that she, just hearing about the this, this story of this girl, this fictitious girl is like just trying to reconcile with all the things that have happened to her. He's like, you can realize why she's so fucked and why she's doing all this stuff. But when, when Jim is like talking to her, I'm just like, God damn dude, if you don't like, like say what you have to say on your heart, it's like, it's so important. But like when she said that, and I, I was totally paying attention to the song, but like as, as soon as she was looking up and she smiled and it just like went to credits, I immediately thought of like, my favorite lyrics from like one of my favorite Nat King song, Nat King Cole songs, which is Nature Boy, and it's that the the very best thing that you can ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. Yeah. I'm just like, God damn, dude. And that's the lyrics of Save Me, the Amy Mann song that's playing, which is, will you save me from the freaks who will never love anyone? And and I think that's what a lot of these characters are dealing with, which is that they've let their pain consume them, that it, it they could not truly love other people until they moved past it. And it's this very vicious cycle of trying to validate how you feel with just moving on and, and starting that new chapter and not letting that uh, affect the way you talk to or communicate with other people. So yeah, when she, when she looks up at the camera smiles and it becomes this bridge uh, to the audience at the moment that the movie is ending. Uh, I've never had, for me, a more powerful experience watching a movie than I have at the elation that I first felt when she did that. And I wasn't expecting that because it, it perfectly embodies that, you know, you can find hope and it will find you. I mean, you know, it's a very, very optimistic message, for I think, even though it's just a very subtle glance. Uh, for a movie that's so full of pain, it says that, you know, for every storm comes the day after, and all you have to do is get through it, and it will be okay. And I, I just love that that moment. No, like no moment in cinema has ever conveyed anything as powerful as that uh, for me, uh, and nothing has come close to that. So, yeah, it's, yeah. absolutely, yeah. I, I, I can't, I can't say anything more about it. It's just you perfectly yeah. wrapped it up. So, um, I. I don't. I don't know if we're heading into the home stretch for our impressions, but like I did want to like read off like the small thing that I wrote about of just my initial impressions yeah. of what I thought Magnolia was about. Like I put it on my letterbox. Why don't we do that starting with you and going around? Okay, cool. Yeah. And we'll end with Nick. Yeah. Okay. So this is just from my my review of of Magnolia. It's just like Magnolia is the sum of many themes combined to create a multifaceted whole. 
It's a film about how the paces and interactions of the human drama play out as a tragic yet ennobling comedy writ large on the stage of our shared existence. It's about the little daily wounds of indignation that we unintentionally inflict on our loved ones, our family, friends, acquaintances, and ourselves. The death comprised of the sum total of many tiny cuts of callous indiscretion we commit throughout our lifetimes. It's about the things we worship and how, if we're not careful, they can come back to destroy us. It's about the universal cross-sections of causal chaos and serendipity that make up the whole of the human experience. It's a movie about how hope can both save us and inadvertently condemn us to a life of embittered loneliness. It's a movie about knowing the difference between knowledge and wisdom in matters of the heart. It's a movie about love. So, yeah. Hmm. I think that ends the episode. (laughs) No, that was extremely well said, and I agree with every bit of that thank you man yeah. yeah very good anyway yeah i i i very much do enjoy this film um i i think the the interesting part of this film is that every character needs to really grow amongst themselves and i think all of them grow in varying degrees throughout the film and i, I think the really important part of this film is that um we, we see characters who are at the beginning of this film other than probably Stanley and maybe Phil, um, who are there, they're not the main characters in the film, but pretty much everybody is on the surface, at least only really concerned about what's happening with themselves. And we see other characters as the movie goes on, uh, start to show compassion for other people in their lives. And I think that's the part of the film that I, I really like is because it's not like, we have this overall theme of, of people wanting to you know, change their lives and, and become better people. It, it's all, all throughout different parts. And I, I think that's, that's really the important part of this film for me is that it's showing that, that life is not like a film. It's not a beginning and an end and everyone's going to be sad at the beginning and happy at the end. People reach their conclusions at different parts of the film. Like Julianne Moore has her big moment probably i don't know like an hour and 20 minutes into the film and even though obviously she has her suicide attempt um you know she has her realization early on in this film um we have the big moments for other characters that are like pivotal moments early on even though jimmy gator has his huge sort of non-committal answer yeah. yeah at the end he at the very beginning of the film goes on like in terms of like making one last ditch attempt at trying to talk to his daughter and at the time obviously we can't understand what's happening if we're watching it for the first time but uh you know i I just really think it's important that the characters in this film show that you know life is not like a movie that it's going to you know start with sad and happy or whatever that it's always going to move throughout and everyone's not going to be on the same train at the same time and that sometimes sucks because you'd like to all be happy at the same time or sad at the same time, but life is just what it is. And, and it's, um, you know, it's, it's at least something to be a part of if, if anything else. As, as Walter, uh, check would say, life does not start and stop at your, at your whim, you miserable fuck. (laughs) But with, with a lot of other films, that's just exactly what it is. It's a story that's going to continue and it does not show characters really growing it at different rates and at different times where this film does so well. So Mm -hmm. yeah. I have some problems with it and some things that I personally don't love about it, mm-hmm. but Magnolia is still a, a very good film made by a terrific filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, and I will pass the baton off to Nick. Whew. 
caught it. <laughs> uh, <laughs> run with it, man. You run with it. I, I want to say a little note before I get into like my big whatever because I actually just reminded me of something. Uh, I also love, uh, as far as the Jimmy Gator character, that his revelation, so to speak, uh, about him possibly, but we know for sure, uh, molesting his daughter, is actually not a shock because how we are introduced to him and how we are introduced to all the characters during that opening montage basically tells us everything we need to know and with him we're introduced to him having sex i mean like that is how we see him and not just having sex but having sex with a woman who's not his wife so we already are introduced to a man who has a careless disregard for the power of sexual intercourse and what it can do to another human being uh not only that but just a little detail then i'll move on to more general thoughts but we before that the literal predecessor to that scene is his own daughter, uh, Claudia, having sex with a very random man, and her sexual panting actually carries over audio-wise over Jimmy's sexual tryst huh. with, and so that is our first indication that, unfortunately, their uh, their sex life or sex history is unfortunately inter- uh, intertwined. And then it zooms in on the on the photo of the him family. and his family. Yes, when we're talking about, he has a daughter. He has a a son and he has a bouncing baby like Great. grandson on, on the way, way and yeah. it zooms in just on those two people in the corner yes. of that because they're the only two as far as that have this bond unfortunately mm-hmm. uh, that the other family doesn't uh, anyway yeah. just hmm. a random detail that I was not going to not say uh, before I before the episode ended mm-hmm. so, as far as my general thoughts I've obviously kind of said a lot of million things about this movie I, I think it is the kind of movie that like Rushmore defined my teens like you know age 10 through 20 whatever this movie defines my 20s as far as where i am in life and how i feel about it and all you know all that uh all that jazz and so it's not even that this movie will continue or it might but will for sure continue to be my favorite film of all time because i could see in 10 years being removed from it and moving into a different phase of my life that i'll react differently to both this movie and to a different movie that might be even more astute uh, but as of right now, this is the movie that I can't shake. And it's the movie that both, I would say, validates my worth as a human being mm. and yet also uh, allows me to feel the pain that I, I, I do feel uh, from time to time. And I don't know that any therapist or uh, you know friend or whatever could exactly get me to this feeling that I get when I watch this movie. And therefore, it is... An invaluable part of my life. It's the the transformative, redemptive power of storytelling. Yes. Yeah. It's and I am on board for all of it. And, yeah. and putting that even aside, I I really didn't talk about this because I feel like it for me and for my reaction to this film, it kind of goes without saying. But I also think, on a technical level, this is amazing. Like as far as PTA's filmmaking, I mean, it's why he's one of my great, my favorite filmmaking filmmakers of all time is because I feel like there's not a wasted shot there's not a uh, I would say pointless camera movement everything is in its right place to create not just the story that he wanted to bring to life but the mood and atmosphere he tried to create that somehow is unified through all these different eight to ten different stories as far as like they do feel like they're all of one story and yet Everybody is doing their own thing and experiencing their own lives. And if that's not a true testament to the human condition and what it means or what it feels like to be a human being, uh, I don't know what it is, you know. So 
So yeah, this is uh, this is my favorite film of all time as of right now, and you know, thank you for sharing it with us because I think that with time this might actually grow to be one of my favorite films of all time. I'm, I'm happy to hear that because I think it's very good. Yeah. <laughs> so that's uh, that's yeah, I think that's the end of my spiel. Okay. Well, that is uh, that is Magnolia. As uh, we enjoyed our, our discussion here on episode forty nine, and uh, we're going to take a little break from our February favorites um, sort of format here and uh, go into a new movie next week. But uh, after that, we're going to go to Toussaint's favorite film, uh, which is Gattaca. Gattaca coming up in a, in a couple weeks on episode fifty one. But I'm next. Gonna... Nick, oh, go ahead. Sorry, I was going to say, and get ready for me making a uh, uh, a Attica joke when we do Gattaca uh, <laughs> from Dog Day Afternoon. I'm just going to scream Gattaca over and over and over. Gattaca, yeah. Gattaca. Oh my goodness! Yeah. <laughs> I'm laughing about it now. I can't wait. Be, be prepared. Uh, yes, just like Scar. Yeah. That's right. So uh, next week, though, actually on episode fifty, wow, hit a hit a bit of a milestone. Look here. at that, and not just episode fifty, but pretty much within the same ballpark, we are approaching the one year mark of yes. our first of our first episode wow. ever released. And on episode, my favorite episode personally, because <laughs> Tucson wasn't. I'm just kidding. Uh, well, whatever, yeah. whatever. At least I'll have like my anniversary on on my favorite episode, my favorite movie. <laughs> So the the film we're talking about, though, on episode 50 is the new Coen Brothers film, Hail Caesar, uh, which will be in theaters uh, coming out on Friday, February the 5th. And go and check it out, and then our episode will come out sometime in the uh, coming week. And uh, we're excited for it, I think. We I, are. I, I, I am. I know me and you, Nick, uh, when we were at Sundance, we did watch the one scene involving Channing Tatum. And, uh, boy, it is... It looks like this film could be everything that it uh, it looked like it could be when yeah. I originally saw the first trailer. So I that scene alone and the other release scene with uh, Ray Fiennes and um, and whatever his name is uh, I, I forget, but of them going through the lines. Uh, and <laughs> today I just actually learned a little detail, and I, I don't think it's a spoiler, but I'm not going to say it about one of the characters that I did not catch on because I think they deliberately hide it, even though it's in plain sight. Hmm. Uh, what? Yeah, I, that that little detail alone just made me want to see it even more. So, okay, yeah. Well, look forward to that coming out next week, and uh, also for Toussaint's favorite uh, film episode, Gattaca, which will be in a couple weeks. So, from Toussaint Egan, Nick Cheney, myself, Alex Diegman, thank you very much for listening to this episode of Film Tank. We will catch up with you next time. 